This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there. Welcome to you. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers and uh, his name is Leon Logan Nathan. How are you, mate? Well, mate, you do it so much better than I do. I think you should probably take over. (laughs) (laughs) All about practice, my friend. I know, and I haven't had enough of that, have I? (laughs) No, no. Well, everyone's got their roles and and places, so what you do, you do very well. Right, right, right. Well, mate, uh, I think it's nearly the end of mango season for as far as Darwin's concerned because I Mm. I looked in my fridge, I've got one left. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, I did actually see a, a box of Nam Doc Mai's uh, make their way in here on Sunday, so uh, I'm sure that there may be a couple in there for you. Okay, all right. Well, mate, um, our guest on the podcast uh, today is um, someone I haven't met before, uh, but I may have because she does look familiar. Um, uh, we, as you know, we sort of bounce around and speak to various people for, uh, across the territory, and um, and uh, in today's case, we are talking to the newly appointed chief executive officer of Jakarta Energy, Louise Louisa Kinnear. Welcome to the podcast, Louisa. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Now, have we actually met before? Because you do look familiar. Oh, possibly. Have you yeah. been into the Jakarta Energy office before? Maybe not, but um, <laughs> but uh, but I have been to a lot of Chamber of Commerce events and perhaps you might have been there. Were you there at the last one, the one that you guys hosted? Yes, I spoke at that one, so that yeah, maybe where it That's where I saw you. That was me grabbing <laughs> on. Right, well, congratulations on your uh, appointment. Thank you. It's very exciting. Yeah, and um, it's it's kind of a bit um, well, it's 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 doubly interesting for me because I noticed that the CEO of the Power and Water, uh, the Power Water, is, are they called the Power Water Corporation or? Yes, Power and yeah. Water Corporation. Yep. Yes, is uh, Juna. Um, no, Pollard, yes. Pollard, yes. No, so I was going to say Argoon because that's her maiden name. So I tutored Juna when she was doing her Bachelor of Business <laughs> at, uh, at Northern Territory University, as it was oh known. Oh, my goodness. I would <laughs> yes. not have teached that at all. I'm sure uh, she doesn't want that known, Leon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably for, for reasons of, of how hopeless I was as a tutor. But, uh, yeah, so when she uh, when she was... Promoted, I think it was last year. It wasn't that long ago. It was, it was sometime this year. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she was in an acting capacity. I think she, she um, st- about a year ago. Yeah, right. you're right. Yeah. So uh, we have uh, two female CEOs of uh, utilities in the Northern Territory. Yes, I was. I've actually been thinking whether that's a unique situation in Australia to have. A network operator and an energy retailer, but then I'm just trying to rack my brains to see if I can think of a female head of a network operator. Might have to come back to you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the other thing that you and I have in common are we're both uh, we're both uh, University of Western Australia alma mater. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Except looking at your uh, your LinkedIn profile, I think 
I'm about 10 years older than you, Louisa. <laughs> may not have crossed paths. <laughs> well, Leon did take a long time, so. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so why don't you tell us your story, obviously, uh, from WA originally? Yes, yes, yeah. I am. So yeah. um, I sort of raised along the coast uh, of Western Australia, sort of on the beach. Um, yes, sir. In uh, near Scarborough, so a okay. suburb called Wembley Downs. Yeah, oh, yes, yes. Just near, just near Scarborough there. So, Pete, for um, you, that's north of the river. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm, I'm just the best place to live in Perth, really. I'm just pleased that we placed it to Perth because I was thinking there's a fair bit of coastline in WA. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So yeah, right. And so your, your family also, your parents also born in Perth? So my mother, well, yeah, my mother was born, um, she was a Fremantle girl, so south of the river, controversial that she ended mm. up meeting north of the river at some point, I'm sure. Um, but my father um, is uh, was Canadian, yeah, he was born in Edmonton. Um, in, wow. In Alberta, yes. How did, and how did he end up in Perth? He came over to Perth um, to complete his PhD at the University of Western Australia in the 60s. Right. Um, a PhD right. in what? In zoology. Oh, right, because, yes, UWA has a big zoology department, don't they? <laughs> yes, and I think he had a fascination with Australian native animals. So, um, ah. And that's where he met my mother, who was also doing her PhD in zoology. So. Wow. So you, you're both your parents are doctors of zoology. They are. Yes, it made for very interesting dinner table conversations. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't think to become a vet, Louisa. Uh, yeah, I have to admit, I think my parents were a little disappointed when I told them I was going to do a Bachelor of Arts. Right. I was majoring in English um, as opposed to do sciences, yes. So. Okay, so, so did your parents, uh, were, were they uh, lecturers at the university at UWA? Uh, my mother went on to lecture at uh, Edith Cowan University right. um, and teach science at Edith Cowan and my father went on to become a researcher at, uh, I guess, the Department of Environment um, at that time um, and focusing on feral fox predation, actually, and trying to protect uh, native animals. Mm, right. And so uh, only child? Yes, an only child. Right. Goodness me. I, I, just, I can't even imagine having two parents that were PhDs in zoology. It would have been really interesting. You must know a lot by osmosis and <laughs> <in> conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's probably all leaked out of my brain now um, after having my own children. But um, I think, um, yeah, it certainly made me, I think, very environmentally aware and quite conscious, I think, of the environmental impacts of humans and, you know, introduced species and feral animals very early on in life. And we generally had some form of native animal baby in the house that was being raised at some point. So mm -hmm. in that sense, um, we, you know, we spent a lot of time camping. We spent a lot of time in the out, in outback Western Australia, uh, not living but certainly camping and um, and raising yeah native animals, so it was quite a quite a um, unique experience I think growing up definitely, but a fun one, really fun experience. 
It's very topical, actually, because uh, I was listening on the ABC today and they were talking about uh, some new methods that they've uh, come up with to eradicate feral cats on uh, Groot Island and, and a few of the other islands, which are uh, well killing off some of the, the very unique species that exist only on those places. Mm. Yeah, it's a real uh, it's a real problem actually, feral cat and feral fox predation, and certainly for the small uh, marsupials that. Australia is very well known for um, is the leading cause, uh, apart from probably land clearing um, of their population decline. So it's something that um, is actually also very challenging to control um, because foxes and cats uh, have adapted to the Australian mm. outback very, very well. Mm. Um, we were camping in, um, we were driving back from Alice Springs actually last year, and we were camping at Devil's Marbles. Um, in that great campsite there with all the, the boulders sort of surrounding you. And um, we must have left the uh, garbage bag open and I heard a rustling in the middle of the night and there was a huge, a huge feral cat um, rustling through our garbage, uh, you know, in the middle of Devil's Marbles, in the middle of, you know, nowhere. Um, and it was, I don't know, it was the size of a, oh, I don't know, the size of a small dog. It was... Or medium-sized dog. It was really, it was just amazing to see how big and strong and um, I think how they've adapted to to the Australian outback over this, over so many years. Mm. Gosh. And so, um, I mean, Edmonton, I, I, I know of someone from Edmonton, actually a couple of people, uh, they tell me, July is the only month that no snow has ever been recorded in Edmonton. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, your your dad didn't miss the cold? Didn't miss? No? No, um, I think think it's ultimately what drove him um, back to Perth. So he met met my mother, I think, uh, um, dates escape me, but uh, he met my mother first when they... He came over to do his PhD. Uh, he finished up here and then he actually went back to Edmonton uh, a few years later uh, and um, my mother joined him and they lived there for five years. But my mother tells the story that um, uh, uh, I'm sure it was sort of um, tailored for dramatic effect, but the way she tells the story is essentially he came home one day in the middle of, you know, a, lot, a long, long winter um, in Edmonton, kind of covered in snow and said, right, that's it, I've had enough, we're going back to Perth. <laughs> we, we've um, actually heard a story, yeah. we've heard a story very similar to that uh, on this mm. podcast, haven't we, Pete? We have indeed, yeah. <laughs> Except it wasn't Edmonton, it was Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Pretty much all of Canada. <laughs> so, so, so have you been over there at all? Uh, yes, yeah, we used to go back for family vacations, um, more so to Calgary than to Edmonton. Um, and funny you mentioned Vancouver. So um, for better or worse, I've ended up marrying a Canadian myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, All right. He's from Vancouver. <laughs> wow, that is funny. <laughs> we, yeah, we actually spend a lot of time back in Canada when we can to see family. Right. And so, okay, so you grew up in Perth, you had the wonderful beaches of Scarborough and City Beach and and all those lovely places. 
Um, and you went to school. Where did you go to school? I went to Churchland Senior High School. That was oh, the local yes. public school. Yeah, yeah. A very good school. It was, yeah, yeah. A lot smaller than it is now at that time. But, um, yeah, I certainly enjoyed my time there, I think, definitely. And, and then you finished school and decided to do an arts degree at UWA. Yes. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm very envious, Louisa, I have to tell you, because uh, 10 years prior to that, when I was going through uni, um, it never even occurred to me to do an arts degree because of the stigma attached to it. Um, and I tell the story of going into the engineering faculty at UWA and uh, there was a sign above the toilet roll there that said, arts degree, take one, which was exactly... <laughs> Which was that was the uh, those were the years of Gordon Gecko and uh, you know all the sort of you know the stock market and yeah. everything and and arts degrees were just not in vogue. But uh, now that uh, you know I've gotten to the age I have and I reflect on, on on my education and and what I'm now learning, and I just think it's just one of the most wonderful degrees that you could actually do. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? I think um, I don't think I even thought I didn't even really second guess my decision to do an arts degree. So for me, I, I had just a love of writing and reading and literature, um, and it was my strength. And so for me to continue on with that just seemed like a natural progression. Like I didn't even. It, it's, it just never occurred to me that there was a perception about further study and, and maybe growing up with parents who were PhDs who, you know, had a very academic approach to life was probably facilitated that. Um, and so I sort of, yeah, went to university having no clue what career I actually wanted to do and um, not really even thinking beyond probably the first year of my degree as to what I might do with it, except that it's something that I knew I really enjoyed doing and I wanted to pursue. And most people, you're right, would either joke that um, uh, oh, I was going to be working at McDonald's, um, which I wouldn't <laughs> actually work at McDonald's, but I feel like it's not necessarily correlated with my choice to do an arts degree. Um, or, um, or that you would become a teacher was the other yes, one. So it was yes. very kind of narrow view of what you could do with an arts degree um and you know i used to i used to be friends with a, a group um who were doing a combined law arts degree as well and um you know they always, they always had that opinion as well about you know what were you going to do with an arts degree it just never really bothered me i just figured i would sort it out at some point once i'd finished my journey and so tell me, I'm really interested. I'm really interested to know what um, what subjects did you do in your arts degree? You, did, oh. you obviously majored in English. Yes, uh, but then everyone goes, "Well, what do you do when you major in English?" Like, you know, we speak English. How can you major <laughs> in it? Um, so uh, for me, it's um, I guess it was a choice of different literature genres and certain types of theories and philosophies that were going on at the time. So um, being raised by academic parents, I think, I, you know, I, 
I've I probably took on a pretty left-wing bent to life at times. <laughs> um, you know, and at the ripe old age of, I don't know, 18, it's about challenging the status quo was probably my my main modus operandi uh, going into an arts degree. So I, I did some pretty fascinating things like gender studies and um, but then also combined that with some Shakespeare and some modernist literature and then some postmodern theory. So... It was sort of this world of um, theories and concepts and ideologies about the, about the world and, and, and how the world operated, which um, was a bit of a mishmash at the time, but I think teaches you to see the world and see people from very different perspectives and seek to understand why the world is the way it is and ask very deep questions and, and argue for, for different perspectives which I think has actually set me up very well for my career in the longer term, that that ability to think critically and think from multiple perspectives um, yes. becomes a real asset, I think, as you move into your working life. Yes, yes. And, and what a wonderful campus to actually contemplate yeah. life, hey? <laughs> yeah, I know. I am biased. Um, and there are many beautiful, you know, university campuses around the world but um, UWA was definitely a um, a good p- place to ponder your existence yeah, and other yeah. things. Oh, Pete, it was <laughs> just amazing. It is it's probably on the on the most uh, valuable piece of land mm. in Perth, right. uh, and and it goes for acres and hectares. You know, it's just massive. Uh, and there's lots and lots of green spaces. And when you walk through the arts faculty, were they, were the peacocks still there, like mm-hmm. wandering through? <laughs> yeah, and they're still there now. They're still there to this day. Obviously, not the same ones. Yeah, and then you had yeah. the, the the Octagon Theatre, which was uh, which was always occupied. Did you do psychology? No. Oh, okay. So I, I I did a unit in psychology in first year. There was 800 students that took that course. <laughs> it was packed. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, look, uh, what really wonderful memories of UWA. Do you still have them? Do you, do you still think? I do. Yeah. yeah, I do. I think um, it's also part of the friendships that you make too in that time of your life too, isn't it? That, exactly. Um, I think you remember as much as what you learnt or didn't learn or yeah. chose not to learn. <laughs> yeah, I have this secret wish, uh, Louisa, which is obviously not going to be so secret now that I say it, but uh, I'm just hoping at least one of my children go to UWA. <laughs> 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 uh, dear. So, okay, so you finished your uh, degree and then uh, what did you do after that? I'd, um, by, by the end of third year, because, you know, the joy of an arts degree is if it's only three years and by the end you it was probably the, one of the only degrees where your number of contact hours reduced the longer you've been doing it. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and I, do, I do remember having that thought of thinking um, in my third year as well, it's just like, right, I'm just going to choose the subjects with the least amount of contact hours and just get through this. You know, busy with life and other things are more important. But um, and, um, I had realised at that point that I probably needed to decide what I was going to do with this degree and um, make some more decisions about uh, what was next, coming up next. So I enrolled myself in a, um, a course which was about uh, practical work placements, which I think was because 
a lot of the university professors were worried about what they were going to do with all these arts, you know, art students kind of locking out the door and having no practical experience behind them. Um, so they had this work placement program and um, where you basically volunteered to help out in an office type environment in an area sort of of your choosing to get some work experience. Um, and I, um, I ended up being placed at uh, the Women's Sport Foundation doing sort of uh, some policy and research work for them around female participation in sport. And um, that actually uh, turned into my first part-time job. Um, so that actually eventually paid me for it. Um, and for a brief moment, I went back to do my honours degree. Um, but by that point, I'd been working part-time for a little while in a real-world environment and I was starting to realise that um, uh, there was a lot more to life than academia and at that point I decided I chose money over the love of studying and um, <laughs> I went, went into the work for, workforce full-time. And your parents sighed collectively. <laughs> yeah, I think they were still a little bit perplexed as to my choices because I was sort of, you know, I, I've never been one to have a career path clearly mapped out. Mm. You know, and I, I didn't have a, yeah, I, I could never clearly, fully describe the type of role that I wanted or who I wanted, you know, what I wanted to do. So I think um, they were probably, they were a little bit worried to start out with that I was probably not necessarily taking a predetermined path, but they were very good. They didn't, you know, criticise me. They were quite supportive of my choices. And so uh, you, you got this part-time job that started to pay you and then how, how did your uh, career progress? Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, I moved into um, more marketing-type work after that for a private company who was sort of running events and conferences, um, thinking, oh, that looked fun. Uh, hmm. It was not fun. It was a lot of really <laughs> hard work. <laughs> yeah, it looks all glamorous. Hmm. It's not it's really long hours for very little pay and recognition and heavily administrative. So, um, the um, yeah, my optimism around that definitely waned over a short period of time. Uh, and I decided, well, this definitely isn't what I want to do. So I am. Um, I ended up moving into government at that point, into a policy role, uh, sort of a graduate policy role, um, uh, navigating changes to environmental legislation, which was, you know, much better in the eyes of my parents, I think. Suddenly I had an environmental bent to what I was doing, which was clearly much more serious work than event management or marketing <laughs> in the sport. So... Um, yeah, yeah, and then I um yeah I um I spent quite a few years doing policy work, uh, and then moved more into um, working with uh, communities and community groups um, who had concerns about major infrastructure projects in the area, and that's where I kind of fell into utilities um, mm. and water supply. Because you spent a year in the as a communications manager in the Department of Premier and Cabinet in. WA. I did, yes. What, what was that like? 
Uh, it was fantastic. I, that was an amazing opportunity where I was seconded into the um, WA Premier's policy office. Uh, so that he, it was Jeff Gallup at the time, mm -hmm. a, a former Labor Premier in WA. And um, that was about the time that Western Australia, or Perth, I should say, Perth's water supply um, was severely depleted as a result of uh, several years of very low rainfall. Uh, and Perth at that time was um, heavily dependent, about 60% uh, I think of water came from uh, the dams and about 40% came from groundwater, both both of which was supplies were depleting. So um, I was uh, part of the team that was working on um, reforming the water sector in order to respond to the drying climate. And so it was a very... Um, uh, uh, active time, I think. The Premier was very committed to making the reforms and making the changes and it was um, it was an amazing, I was sort of working with all the key stakeholder groups to sort of uh, bring, get, get consensus, I think, on the policy reforms and what should happen and how they should be implemented. And so I, I was able to have this amazing bird's eye view of um, uh, government reform and policy coordination, you know, from, from sort of the very top level and also start to understand the machinations of government and how government worked from a, at a political level. Um, so it was it was an amazing time and um, probably one of the highlight of my careers in some way. But you were only there for a year. Yeah, that's right. So at that point, uh, Jeff Gallup, he resigned as the Premier. Um for personal reasons, and once he'd resigned, um, the agenda changed. I think Alan Carpenter, from memory, was um, succeeded him, and uh, the agenda became very, very different. So I had a choice to go back to my uh, government position, and then I had a job offer to move to the Water Corporation to continue the work that I'd actually been doing on the water reform program. Mm. So and you, and you obviously chose that and you joined the Water Corporation and you were there for uh, five, almost six years. Almost six years, yeah. Yeah? Yes. And, and what did, what, I mean, because, I mean, I, I obviously having, le I left Perth in 1990, but I do remember water being a problem every year, you know. We were always talking about running out of water and there's not enough rain and all that type of thing. What were the water strategies? Um, the, there was sort of a multi-pronged approach. So one was obviously water efficiency and engaging with community on behaviour change and so forth, which was very successful. Um, the other supply side approach uh, was uh, trying to identify new, less climate dependent sources of water. So uh, Perth and the Water Corporation um, was... Um, certainly the first in Australia and maybe the second or third organisation in the world to introduce desalination, saltwater desalination. Oh, wow. As a source of water supply. Um, so it was actually very innovative for its time. Yeah. Um, whereas now it's sort of, I think, uh, I think there's possibly a third desalination plant on the cards in Western Australia now, in Perth. Um, but, um, yeah, it was the first one that had been done um, uh, certainly in Australia and it went many around the world. So that was a very big high-profile project, um, quite controversial in some ways. Um, and the other project that I was involved in was 
uh, taking um, treated wastewater and treating mm-hmm. it to a really, really high quality, um, <laughs> higher than drinking water standard, and then injecting it into the groundwater aquifers uh, beneath Perth um, for Gee. reuse later in drinking water supplies. That would have been controversial, wouldn't it? It was. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was a fascinating project and uh, I spent a lot of time with um, psychologists, uh, CSIRO, um, and industry experts around risk communication to understand what was required in order to uh, get community support for the project. Mm. Um, it eventually happened. So uh, how long ago now? Uh, five years ago maybe, six years ago. Um, first... Um, Volumes of treated wastewater were re-injected into the groundwater aquifers and now it is a contributing source to, to Perth's water supply. Um, and so we were, we were successful in gaining that community support and it's a little bit of a non-issue in, in Western Australia now. People kind of shrug their shoulders. It's not something that's actually particularly controversial. And um, But we spent a long, long time engaging with politicians and stakeholders and community groups and industry experts in order to get that line. So basically they were treating sewerage and then injecting it, what, How through the ground? Sewerage, Leon. <laughs> it's injecting wastewater. It, <laughs> injecting it into the ground, into the, back into the dams. To force-feed right? people. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Right, it's, all very, it's very controversial. So um, to, it, was, it was a lot of controversy in Toowoomba at the time who were also proposing a similar um, uh, proposal. The difference between Western Australia and what was happening in Toowoomba and other places was that we weren't proposing to inject it into directly into the drinking water source in the sense of it wasn't going into the dam that went, was then fed into people's homes. It was injected several hundred metres into the ground, into an aquifer, um, and would have remained there for years. And over time, um, further downstream, the aquifer was drawn upon for water supplies. Oh. So it wasn't quite as direct in the sense of, you know, what goes in, you then ingest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so Perth doesn't have a water problem anymore then? Or how does it work? Well, no, there um, uh, I couldn't tell you that accurate percentages these days, but certainly more than 50% of their water supply now comes from desalination. Really? Because I remember the last time I looked at this, which was years ago, Louisa, it was really expensive uh, from an electricity perspective to convert salt water to drinkable water. Is that right? It is correct. Mm. And it is still um, a very high energy intense process in order to do that. It's getting more efficient but it is, it's very, very energy intensive. And right. not only is it expensive, Leon, mm-hmm. but it makes your hair feel terrible. <laughs> Why is that? I don't know. It must be the residual salt or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's just different to, um, you know, the tap water we get here. Yeah. Well, there was one other solution, Louisa, that I don't think they ever considered. That was to move the entire population down to Albany because yeah. it just yeah. doesn't stop raining there, Louisa. <laughs> I lived there for three years and it was terrible weather. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's kind of like living, you know, sort of down south of Melbourne or something, isn't it? It's just you're right on the, the southern coast there and you get the Antarctic winds and fronts coming up and it's um beautiful coastline but um really erratic weather. Uh, and cold all year round. Yeah. Even in the middle of summer, yeah. it could be 40 degrees in Perth and it'll be like 18 yeah. in Albany. And raining, yes. <laughs> raining. Nice place to visit, tough place to live. <laughs> <laughs> so um, did you do much travel around uh, Western Australia? Yeah, yeah, I have actually. I've, I've sort of gone all the way to past Esperance. I don't think I've ever quite got to the South Australian border though. I haven't got quite to um, down that way, but um, and yes, and um, yeah, and all the way up to right up to the to the border of the NT now. Right. So you drove up here, have you? Did you? Uh, not initially, we didn't. Um, but um, we did drive from Darwin to Broome last year. Right. Um, well, I'm glad you enjoy that, Louisa, because I drove up the first time I came to Darwin <laughs> in 1990, and. Uh, I've never done a, a drive like that ever again. Really? <laughs> you have to be prepared. I think you know what to expect. Yeah, well, I came up in a, in a Toyota Corolla and that uh, had four cylinders when it started and I think it was operating on three by the time we got to Darwin. <laughs> um, yeah, that's another story altogether. That's part but, of it. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so you came to Darwin through your move to Jakarta, is that right? Yes, I did. Correct. Okay, and uh, and how, what 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 um, motivated you to uh, to leave? Because I mean, obviously, we you spent some time in synergy here. I can see uh, <laughs> before you came up. Yes, I did. So, what so was it? Um, yeah, I was. I think I was looking for a challenge. I, I'd been living in Perth all my life, and yes. um, I was starting. My kids were starting to get a little bit older, and I was starting to think about um, wanting to introduce them to different experiences as well, um, and being open to living in different places. Um, and I, and I think from a career perspective as well, I was sort of looking for a new, a new challenge. And so um, I was actually at that point, I think, trying to convince my husband to go back to Vancouver. Mm. Um, but um, a bit like my father, he decided that the weather was terrible in Vancouver and while I was like, <laughs> 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 that wasn't very successful. Um, and, and then the, the opportunity came up. Uh, to interview for the role at Jakarta, and I, I remember saying to my husband, I'm "Like, oh, Darwin? What, what do you think about moving to Darwin?" And he sort of like, "Oh, you know." At that point, I think he lived in Canberra and Perth, and hadn't done the the kind of the tropics, so I think mm. that appealed to him. And um, and so yeah, I, f I flew up here for an interview, and I kind of started thinking, "Oh, I, you know, I quite like the idea of working for a smaller organisation in a in a smaller town." Um, you know, my kids were at a, a good age to maybe try something different. And so it just seemed like the right opportunity for us as a family, not just for my career necessarily. And so we thought we'd give it a go. 
What month was it when you did the interview? It was October, late October. <laughs> Brutal. Yes. Um, yeah, I remember thinking, I do remember thinking, oh, gosh, it's hot, and walking to my interview and kind of thinking, oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to sweat through my clothes before I even get into the interview. Mm. Um, it didn't really deter me, though. It didn't, that didn't worry me, really. I quite liked the idea of, yeah, being somewhere different and experiencing something new. And so that was for the Executive General Manager of Sales and Marketing? It was, correct. Right. So you've only really been in Darwin for uh, just on two years? Yeah, just under. Two years in January, already, yeah. And, and uh, what's, what's been your experience? I mean, obviously you've done very well from a career perspective, but yeah. like in, in, terms of, in terms of other things, Louisa? I think what I've uh, really loved about being in Darwin is the lifestyle. Uh, I think for us as a family and if I think about, you know, my, my ages of my children, there's, there's sort of 11 and 7, and um, there's a real, I think, it's very easy to be yourself in Darwin. I think there's, there's an acceptance of who you are um, and what you bring. And I think for the children in particular, being able to live uh, near the school and uh, close by and for work for me and my husband to be close by and uh, for there to be no commute mm. and for the weather and the lifestyle to be so relaxed and laid back, I think it's actually really benefited us as a family and I think we've all kind of found our place here and been welcomed and accepted by the broader Darwin community. So I think um, in that sense it's been quite an easy transition and a really comfortable and welcoming transition and I've really appreciated the welcoming and accepting nature of, I think, people living in the Northern Territory, definitely. No, uh, look, I think the Territory is one of those places, Louisa, that. Um what we find is people either feel they've that they instantly fit in, or, or they almost never fit in. Yeah. There's that there's that two year period where they they come and they go, or if they get over that two year hump, they could be here for twenty or thirty years. Yeah, I think that's. I think I, I can really see that too because having now been here a couple of years and you you know your routines are a bit more settled and you you. Uh, made a few kind of more longer-term connections with, with communities you're in or school groups or, or friends and so forth, um, you sort of start to you, you start to get really comfortable with that and I think you suddenly realise that going back to a big city where you've got to drive around all the time and it's very busy and a bit stressful, you sort of suddenly go, oh, oh why would I yeah. Why would I choose to do that again? It's, it's, um, well, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that, Louisa, because uh, I'm very familiar with Perth. Where, where, where did you live? So I didn't, the, um, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. So <laughs> I, I literally was still in Scarborough when we left to come mm -hmm. to Darwin. Not in the okay. same house, can I say. I didn't <laughs> actually leave my parents' house. Mum and Dad kicked you out by then. <laughs> so, so from Scarborough to the city that would have been on the Mitchell Freeway early in the morning, it would have been yeah, congested, you know, to say I the least. Because it wasn't 
you're terribly far from the yes. CBC by any means and yeah. um, Perth's not Sydney or Melbourne, but uh, it's. Um, I think when you're trying to drop two children off at different locations um, and then try and find parking in the city and or try and find parking at the train station and then getting on the train, um, it was, you know, sometimes an hour, an hour and a half just to get 10Ks into the city and it was wearing us out. You know, my husband and I were both working in the city at that point and our children were not in anywhere near the city. And um, it was a pretty um, it was a pretty hard slog there for a while, definitely. Yeah. And then you came up here. Where, where do you live here? Uh, we're just on the edge of Larrakia. Oh, my goodness. Right. right. So, so you can... <laughs> yeah, literally like a kilometre from work and yeah. 500 metres from the school. So... Um, that's it's just that to us has been life changing, definitely. Mm. Yeah. What do you, you know? And you've got all that time back now. Yeah, yeah. So even if I, you know, do work late at the office, it's five minutes down the road, and I'm home. And <laughs> the kids are home, and everyone's happy, and you know, you're not rushing around, panicking about picking kids up from after school care, and it's um, you know, my son goes into middle school next year, and so. He loves the independence he has here. That's made a big difference mm. to him, definitely. Yes. And, and have your parents been up to, to see you? Yes, my mother has. Um, my father passed away a couple of years ago, but um, uh, even despite COVID, my my 75-year-old mother hopped in her camper van and drove all the way up here from Perth wow. to spend the dry season with us. Yeah. By herself? By herself. Oh, Right, so yep. she is through and through a, a zoologist as a genius, yeah. <laughs> and, and loved every minute of it. Every okay. minute of it, she's just she's amazing. She's so independent, a bit of a free spirit. So, what does a zoologist do when they come to Darwin? As a matter of interest, because there's not a lot of zoos to go to, but <laughs> we, we have interesting wildlife and places you can go to check that out. That's right. Yes. So she loves. She enjoys camping. So she was off seeing all the sites, I think. Um, and since she retired, she's actually become a, uh, a pastel artist. Wow. So yeah, she's um. Uh, she now paints in her spare time, and does um, does very well at it. Actually, she's very very talented. Jen. Has not passed that talent on to me. <laughs> <laughs> Family skipped a generation, I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, so she's um, she kept kept herself very busy up here painting the landscapes and the sites. And I was going to say there'd be some pretty unique stuff for her to do up here that she yeah. wouldn't have seen previously. Yes, I think she really enjoyed her time up here. I think she's a little bit out of sorts when she got back to Perth. Mm. Yeah. And uh, what about you? What, what what do you do for hobbies and things outside of work? That's a really good question. Um, not a whole lot of time <laughs> between work and family. Um, so at the moment, I've um, actually I'm a bit, I'm a bit um, reluctant to broadcast this over the internet, but um, I um, I've actually joined a singing group. Right. It's just a, a group of us that get together on a Wednesday night after work um, and we are, um, we're coached by the lovely um, Angie Sublime who often sings around Darwin, if you've come across Angie, but um, 
and none of us are by any means professional singers, um, but we belt out a few songs and um, do a few harmonies together and go home feeling a lot better about our lives after that, I think. Is this just an excuse to drink wine on a Wednesday afternoon? Well, yes, it is. <laughs> Thank everyone you for your sounds honesty. better after they've had a couple of drinks of wine. <laughs> Every karaoke bar survives by alcohol. So I was going to say, this is a, a kind of a slightly more in, informal version of karaoke, really. Um, <laughs> and and, and work-wise, I mean, it just sounds like you've had tremendous opportunities that you've taken, Louisa. Yeah, I um, uh, yeah, like I said, I don't, uh, I've never been one to plan, you know, too far ahead in terms, I've always gone where the work has interested me um, and where I felt that I had the skill set to add value. Um, something that's very important to me in my work life is can I make meaningful change? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that I um, think very hard about before I, I take a role. And I've been very, very fortunate, I think, to have found those opportunities mm-hmm. um, throughout my career. And certainly I was not expecting moving up here two years ago that I would be in the position I am today. And I've, mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in Darwin can say that, can't they? Yeah. Yeah, I I honestly see Darwin and the Northern Territory as a place of huge opportunity Um, and, you know, if people are willing to give it a go, uh, I I think it it really does pay dividends um, personally and professionally. Um, You know, it's, it's, um, yeah, certainly... Um, I've benefited from that and my family have, but others have as well very much so. And um, I think also from a gender balance perspective, um, there are a lot of women in senior roles within Darwin, within Parliament, um, uh, Cabinet Ministers, uh, executives within the public sector and the private sector, and that um, is very heartening to me to see that here that um, level of acceptance um, and gender balance is, is quite apparent to me at times here in Darwin. Mm-hmm. So tell us about, so from, a, from a work perspective, I didn't work in, in Western Australia or in Perth. Culturally, do you see any differences between work culture in Perth compared to up here? Yeah, I do. Yes, I do. I think um, it's a very good question. I think to me here, I think given the size of the, you know, the population here and the workforce, relationships are very, are more important. Um, that's not to say that relationships aren't important uh, in other, you know, jurisdictions either, but I think they, they're, they're more key to how you influence and get things done within the Northern Territory than perhaps other jurisdictions. And that's not, that's not a bad thing, but quite a, a nice thing because it means that um, you create meaningful connections with the people that you work with in order to facilitate the changes that you're looking to achieve. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, from Western Australia, um, it's bigger uh, and... While relationships are important um, and who you know is important, I think uh, it's not as significant as probably working in a smaller place like Darwin where 
people will assess you based on what other people have said about you. You know, word of mouth becomes mm. important. Um, but I think if you build the right rapport with people here in Darwin, um, people are very supportive. Mm. Louisa, <clears throat> you won't know this, but um, I've been involved in the solar power industry for quite a few years. And uh, so I, I've had, a, um, I guess, more of a, a, a working um, history with Paramwater and uh, with, with Jukana in recent years. Um, when, when Jukana was sort of first set up and spun off, there was a, a lot of hysteria, particularly in the solar industry, about, oh, they're going to kill the feed-in tariff and they're doing it to screw the industry and blah, 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 which we didn't see um, for quite some time, I must say. Of course, the, the feed-in tariff uh, has, has changed now, but can can you talk to um, you know what the motivation was uh, initially for creating Jukana Energy um, and, and what that's likely to mean uh, for customers moving forward? Yeah, sure. I, I I probably can't speak for the decision makers. You know, back in 2012, 2013, 2014, around the the um, ultimate motivations for splitting up what was in Paramotor Corporation in its entirety, um, except uh, that to some extent the NT was probably following what most other markets had done across the world at that point in time, which was to separate out its supply chain um, to get a more transparent view of how costs are transferred between the different functions within energy. And that's usually the first step to then creating a more competitive market, which, you know, uh, depending on your beliefs, uh, should lead to the creation of more competitive energy prices. Um, so I can assume that that was the intent behind the initial split uh, back in 2014, but obviously given that I wasn't here back then, I you know, can't attest to that 100%. It was probably more about driving some efficiency out of energy supply within the Northern Territory and potentially setting up for additional comp competition in the generation and the retail markets into the future to, to keep prices more competitive. Um, in terms of, I think, how that's gone and where, where it will go, um, to me, it, particularly given the transition that all... Uh, Australian energy markets are moving towards, which is a renewable transition. Um, you actually, you are better off if you've got uh, entities, whether they're privately owned or government owned, that are um, open to change and uh, can can adapt to the changing energy market. So having smaller entities with more discrete roles generally should assist that. Mm -hmm. um, what you have to be mindful of is when they're government-owned or they're monopoly organisations is that there is appropriate regulations in place to ensure they don't continue to dominate the market. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly I think the NT is still undergoing that transition where obviously there's some competition but not a lot yet. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that will change over time. Um, my experience working in the energy industry for the last 10 years has been more on the new technology side um, and in particular solar um, and I've watched solar become the most competitive source of 
of energy supply uh, within Australia and also globally. You know, I think the tipping point probably happened a few years ago, you know, and certainly once you start started seeing Bloomberg report on the fact that, you know, uh, the long-run marginal cost of uh, a, a solar farm was now lower than the long-run marginal cost of a coal-fired power station, you knew that yeah. transition was inevitable. Um, so for me personally, I think now having uh, come here and, and taking over from Jakarta, um, we have a very strong role to play, I think, in facilitating that renewables transition in a way that um, secures safe and reliable supply for the Northern Territory and ideally more affordable supply as well. That competition you speak of, uh, are we likely to see that in our lifetime? Yeah, look, I mean, you've you've certainly got some competition now. So uh, you have the likes of Rimfire, um, who are um, both a solar retailer and an energy retailer, and uh, uh, certainly a few other retailers who are entities that hold retail licenses that do participate in the market at times. Um, there is there is potential there. I think um, it's not a big market, so that the amount of competition is probably always going to be limited to a few players. Mm. Um, but. I think there is that opportunity there and uh, to me um, competition keeps companies on its toes whether that they're government owned or not and it's not a bad thing. Of course, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean um, the, the concept of competition is great and as you say, it's a small market but, you know, and, and yes, there are some players in the market but, you know, from a retail perspective, it doesn't feel that way at, at this point. No, you're right. It's very, very early days um, and uh, there probably needs, it's, it's an interesting scenario where there probably needs to be a little, um, retailers need access probably to more sources of generation. Um, that It's a challenge actually in Western Australia too where the way that the market is set up is that you essentially have to have access to capital to invest in generation in order to access that generation to compete in the market mm. or you have to buy at quite high prices. So and that does tend to um, uh, dissuade competition. So I think that the challenge for the territory is very much around, well, how does it, how does it uh, provide retailers with more fluid access to cheaper, greener, cleaner sources of energy um, without the retailers having to uh, carry a very, very large um, balance sheet or investment risk associated with that. It is quite challenging. Yeah, and look, we, we hear a lot about Sun Cable each day. Um, you know, does that play a role in, in helping you to be able to deliver lower prices? Uh, look, possibly. I think um, any form of uh, renewables uh, that can be connected to the grid um, and certainly renewables that can provide a um, a more consistent supply of energy, so not just during the day when the sun shines but with battery banks or mm. potentially some other gas-fired generation um, will will provide cheaper uh, and cleaner energy. Um, you know, actually, when you look at what Sun Cable are proposing to do, uh, Darwin and the Northern Territory are like a tiny, 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 tiny uh, fraction of that offtake. Yeah. Um, so we're sort of a, a blip on their radar. But look, certainly if that opportunity became available, um, 
that 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 has the potential to benefit the territory definitely. Yeah, because the irony the irony is not lost on the fact that, it, as you say, it's a it's a massive project that's been proposed, but it, it'd be an awful shame if if uh, you know the majority of it or all of it was sent away offshore and uh, locals didn't get any benefit at the pump, as it were. Yeah, look, I think uh, Sun Cable are exploring both um, some local options, although obviously the eye on the prize is, is supply to Singapore. Um, but they've, I think they've certainly been engaging with government on, on options to, to provide local supply if that's required into the future. I think as have a lot of um, industry proponents. There's actually quite a lot of interest uh, from private entities up here to invest in renewables and other sources of energy within the Northern Territory. Um, and I think that will continue, which is very, very good, I think, for the Territory itself. Because mm. you often hear about projects um, that are looking to come to the Territory, but the issue for them is cheap energy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, correct. Um, look, the Territory does have quite high uh, wholesale electricity prices um, uh, if you compare to other jurisdictions. I mean, to some extent you would expect them to be a little higher given the remote location and the size of, of the population here. Um, so you can't necessarily make a direct comparison, but um, I think there is certainly plenty of opportunity to... Um, work collaboratively with government over the next few years to identify opportunities to make the energy price much more competitive to help stimulate that industry development, definitely. So currently the way our uh, generators are run is through gas, is that right, with diesel backup? Uh, correct, yes. So it's uh, predominantly gas-fired. Um, diesel is used in a lot of remote communities um, where they don't have access to to other sources of fuel. Right. And how does that compare to what happens down south? Are they more coal-driven? It depends, I think. Um, yeah, look, certainly um, if you look at the national electricity market and then the Western Australian electricity market, the proportion of coal um, is a lot greater and, and historically coal has been a very, very cheap source of stable energy load. And um, that's one of the drivers of the lower prices in other jurisdictions. Um, coal is obviously not very accessible up here in the Northern Territory, so the reliance on um, a single source of fuel being gas does dictate the price here, definitely. Mm. I guess we need to address the elephant in the room. Um, who kicked out the cable last week? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm so, I wish I could answer that question for you, actually. So um, I think um, Jakarta uh, plays a supporting role there in terms of um, ensuring that customers on life support and who require medical attention still have access to power. And we certainly support the messaging and communications that are sent out by Power and Water Corporation. But in terms of the actual um, management of the assets that provide the power to Northern Territory, that um, is uh, uh, really managed mostly by Power and Water Corporation and obviously territory generation. But in all honesty, your phones were ringing off the hook, right? Yeah, yeah it, you know what? It, it was it was a really interesting time. Um, 
certainly we got a few queries about it from Jakarta Energy, but most customers know now where there is an outage or a fault to call Peak Power and Water Corporation wow. directly. Um, so we certainly provide support, provide support where required, but um, where there's a fault, um, it's Power and Water Corporation who will bear the brunt of the, of the calls. Um, certainly the, um, the trends that I observed myself um, that evening was the number of uh, conversations on Facebook around which <laughs> pubs still had power so that people could watch State of Origin. <laughs> well, that is important, let's be honest. <laughs> I feel that Territorians got their priorities right that night. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Which pubs yeah. are diesel operated? <laughs> right, it was, that's right. Someone tell me if the precinct... Power or not? <laughs> <laughs> so, in just in terms of solar take up, um, and Pete's actually installed solar on my place, uh, Louisa. So, uh, apologies for the. Uh, well, no, you'd be happy about that because it's all renewable. <laughs> so, it's um, it's um, what's the, what's been the take up in the territory as a sort of general proposition with solar? Yeah, so um, the territory, I think. Um, is I think from memory somewhere between twelve and four or fourteen percent kind of households have installed solar on their rooftops. I don't know. You might know that better than that statistic better than I do. Um, I reckon you're in the ballpark. I, I I always think it's much lower than it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look. I mean, it depends. Again. You're not necessarily comparing apples with apples. If you look at sort of Queensland, South Australia or Western Australia, those penetration levels are well up kind of close to 30 40% mm. uh, now. But um, I think the thing you have to remember is, again, if you look at the, the size of the Darwin-Catherine grid in particular and, um, and its remoteness, its isolation, um, it doesn't actually take a large, you know, a penetration level much higher than that before, um, you know, Power and Water Corporation as the network operator have to start thinking about what the impacts are to the system. Mm. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, though. Uh, it's it's more about learning to operate the grid with renewables in place, not Absolutely. necessarily containing them, yes. Yeah, because that, that has been a, a real issue, um, certainly before your time, but... You know, we, we were sailing along beautifully there for a while and I think uh, at that point five kilowatts was, was the largest we could install quite freely on most residential homes. And uh, then we started hearing about the concept of hotspots and uh, we, we uh, I remember actually we got called into the boardroom there at, at Jakarta one day and, and they explained to us, well, you know, the maximum size that we could then install for a period of time, which just wasn't going to cut it for, for most, uh, you know, residential homes. Um, but, yeah, there, there, there has been some frustration, I suppose, because, uh, yeah, you're dealing with, a, with a, um, a technology that's pretty fast moving, as you said before, like it's, it's going in leaps and bounds. Um, but it's also important for, for networks to keep up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and it has presented some very significant technical and engineering challenges um, within Australia. Australia has one of the highest proportions of, of rooftop solar in the world. Mm. And um, that presents very unique challenges that, um, you know, network operators have grappled with. I think 
I've certainly seen a shift, you know, in the in the ten years that I've been working in the industry. You know, having started out working for a network operator, um, I think there is an there's a, an acceptance now that we have to manage it, and you can't just manage it by by um, curtailing it. Uh, and 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 now I think certainly if you look to uh, South Australia in particular, but it's certainly been child in other jurisdictions. They're actually starting to understand the value that rooftop solar and other um, sort of behind the meter renewables can actually um, the role that, that that solar can play in actually contributing to grid stability rather than just causing grid instability. Um, yeah. Through, and that's through things like um, um, incentivizing the time of day that solar and battery systems export into the grid to actually provide support services to stabilise the grid and things like that. So it's uh, the the frameworks are changing nationally um, and it's some, certainly something that I'm interested in, you know, in my time here in the Northern Territory and exploring more is is what can we actually do to incentivise the use of rooftop solar and battery systems in a way that actually supports grid the grid rather than causing a problem. Um, We've got a, we're participating in a trial in Alice Springs at the moment, which is looking at that in particular, the Alice Springs Future Grid trial, where we're um, looking at paying customers uh, who install a battery as part of the trial, um, actually paying them a, a flat monthly fee um, to allow us to use their solar energy at a certain time of day to provide those grid services. Um, so oh, it's a benefit yeah. to the customer. Um, they get paid for it. Um, it's not your 8.3 cents a kilowatt hour. It's um, a much better rate than that. Um, so it helps them pay off the cost of the battery, but they're actually providing a valuable service to the grid as a result. Mm. Well, I mean, that that's fantastic because, look, I'm, I'm really interested in... Uh, I suppose, value-adding in that environment because, you know, as Leon said before, um, uh, I facilitated to install a system on his roof and, of course, as soon as uh, the announcement was made that the feed-in tariff was going to change, you know, I fielded a lot of phone calls about what did that mean Mm. uh, for people with systems. Now, I suppose... In some respects, there was a little bit of ignorance involved because people don't understand. You know, you mentioned before behind the meter, a lot of people don't understand what that means, and so they naturally went, "Oh, well, I've just lost, you know, whatever it was, sixteen cents or thereabouts per kilowatt hour." Um, but down south, it is it is more mature. Uh, well, I suppose the understanding is is greater for how it works. Um, but what sort of other incentives are, are you guys likely to offer solar customers? So I think um, if we recognise the value that uh, solar customers play in, I think, contributing to grid services, um, I think the types of incentives can shift away necessarily from just paying customers a cents per kilowatt hour rate to actually paying them you know, a, a flat monthly fee for the services they provide. So that sort of kind of gives certainty to the customer about, okay, well, I'm guaranteed this amount of money, you know, regardless of how I use my system to some extent, mm. I don't have to worry about it. Um, it makes it a lot simpler for customers to understand. 
I think the other um, the other options that you know we would really like to consider are, are different types of power structures for people. Um, you know, if they've got a smart meter or if they are a solar customer, um, that might, uh, uh, I guess. Uh, benefit the way that they use their solar already and things like that. So I think there's quite a bit of opportunity to explore that further within the Northern Territory and identify different parts of other tariff structures or incentive payments for customers who are investing in solar and battery into the future. Are Jakana uh, ever likely to offer other products? So down south, uh, as you'd be aware, I'm sure, uh, you know, some of the retailers uh, they they're, they're like the um, remember the, the guy from I think he was from Sesame Street with the trench coat with all the watches in it. You know they've got yes they've got power <laughs> they've got phone deals they've got is that is that something that you guys might entertain? I think um, oh look I would never say never. Um, I think as a as a retailer you know with the business model for energy retailers is changing really dramatically because you know the the way in which retailers um, make money and generate revenue is is changing um, so we have to be creative in the way we provide services into the future I think um, what those services are, I probably I wouldn't absolutely say that we're suddenly going to be selling insurance one day or <laughs> the next, not necessarily. Um, you know, you've got to think about well, it's not necessarily our core business, and we probably wouldn't be very good at doing that. Um, but we certainly um, want to make sure that the services that we are providing to Territorians is valuable, it's relevant, it's easy, and it's affordable. Mm. And so I think at the moment there is kind of one tariff available. It's, you know, it's the regulated tariff and I don't necessarily think that needs to be the case. Um, I think there are other ways that we can offer value to customers beyond just sending them a bill every month, definitely. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess that's right. It's the relationship uh, with, with utilities that uh, people don't really have. You know, they they get a bill every month, and yeah, there's not much other contact other than the you haven't paid your bill. Hurry up, or we're going to disconnect your letter. That's right. It's great, great, lovely interaction, isn't it? I think. Um, look, I'm the first one to call out that energy is a grudge purchase. No one wants to spend money on paying electricity bill. Everyone wants to put that money somewhere else. Um, but we recognise that it's and it's necessary in order for us to maintain the quality of life that we have. Mm. Um, so I think particularly as a government-owned retailer, Jakarta has a responsibility to ensure that energy remains affordable um, and it's that it's not a hassle for people and that, you know, on top of that, if we can actually make the process of supplying energy um, easier and less painful for people, and they have a bit more choice about how it gets supplied to them and the price they pay, um, then we're going to be doing a better job. And listen, I will give you one bouquet. We, we, we do hand out a lot of brickbats uh, on the podcast, but I will give you one bouquet. Uh, I, I spend a fair bit of time down south over the last couple of years and due to a, a, a mail issue, um, I didn't get some bills. And then uh, I, I think they got an email or something and, 
the email basically said, mate, you need to pay your bill or it's curtains. So I, I rang up and I spoke to uh, whoever it was, one of your um, you know, frontline staff. And uh, I said, oh, look, I'm really sorry, but I actually didn't get my bills, but I've just got a, uh, an email saying that, you know, we need to get this paid. And I'm, I'm really just ringing to say, oh, I'm going to pay it straight away. <laughs> and thanks for the threat. It's done well. Um, but just don't disconnect it. And he says to me, mate, we wouldn't disconnect you anyway. You've been a customer for a long time. Uh, it would take a lot to get to that. And I thought, I've, I haven't forgotten that. I thought, you know, it was probably 90 bucks or something, but I just thought, hey, good on you for saying that. Even if that's just some line that you've been told to say, it, it was effective. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear. I think, um, look, certainly something that I've experienced in my time here is that um, the team in our call centre actually um, do deal with most inquiries very, very well. and, and um, um, customers actually generally do give the experience with our call centre um, a big thumbs up most of the time and you can't always say that for electricity retailers across the nation. True. Um, so they, you know, they, they are doing their best. Um, we can improve and, uh, you know, I think we all want want to improve within the organisation to kind of take it to that next level and, um, you know, where, you know, make it so that you don't even have to ring us occasionally as well. You can do things like access your account online and yep. um, do all those things that you can do in other retailers as well. There's only one change I'd like to see them make at the call centre. What's that? And this is just a personal thing. And I love the fact that Darwin's got so many different, uh, you know, people from different nations and different accents and what have you. But one thing that some of the, um, uh, you know, larger companies have done in recent years, which I, I do really appreciate because there's a lot to be said for uh, colloquialisms and there's a lot to be said for just mutual understanding. And that is, you know, hi, Jakarta Energy, uh, this is such and such here in the Darwin call centre mm. or the Catherine call centre or the yeah. Alice Springs because I think automatically people go, oh, awesome. Don't worry about the accent. That's all good. But I know that person understands me, not not from a language point of view, but understands where I live, how I live, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's actually a really good suggestion because it is an asset to have our call centre based in Darwin and we have also have people in Alice Springs as well and that's, um, that is a real asset that we should be proud of. You're right. Yep. Yeah, well, that's uh, no charge for that suggestion. <laughs> Not this time. <laughs> well, I, it was a bit remiss of me, uh, Louisa, but I forgot to mention the fact that you've actually, you actually went on to do an MBA at UWA. I did, yes. Yeah, and how was that? Uh, it was great. I'm so glad I did it and I loved every minute of it. Um, it was very busy. Uh, I just, you know, I don't know, a bit of a glutton for punishment, but I did decide to start it when my first child was very small, and I finished it when my second child was four months old and not sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do feel like now that I've done that, I can probably do anything. If I can finish an MBA completely sleep deprived, um, it's not much I can't do. But yeah, for me. Um, Having you know gone from a major in English, you know, to then 
round out my experience in education, you know, on the commercial and the financial side was um, it was it was just a great experience, I think, and I, I feel like uh, it's allowed me to really branch out in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and uh, I think, yeah, uh, be a lot more commercial in my thinking and understanding and um, I feel very confident now in my ability yes. to run a business, I think, yes. as a result of not just my work experiences but also the, the training and education that, I, that I've gone through. Did you feel that the UWA MBA was was well um, delivered? You had good lecturers, you had good uh, exposure to real-life problems and things like that? Yeah, for the most part I did. Um, You know, I think um, the UWA part-time MBA that I did was all coursework. So there was, um, at that point in time, I don't think there was an option for online or maybe there was for some courses but another. And that that actually appealed to me was being physically in a classroom with a lecturer and classmates working was something that I felt was the better structure for me. And um, I had I had some great lecturers actually and some great great tutors who really challenged me and opened up my thinking and um, I think pushed me along the way to probably um, help me achieve things that I didn't think I would be able to as well. So really build my confidence, I think, in my abilities as well. So it was a very positive experience for me. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, that's really good to hear, uh, Louisa, because I always wondered what it would be like to do a, an MBA at, uh, at UWA. And, uh, you've, <laughs> you've enlightened me a little bit. Yeah, I think um, it was interesting, again, uh, I was often the only arts graduate there and um, being from Western Australia, the majority of people that, that you know, did MBAs, particularly at the time that I was doing them, were um, engineers who were in the mining industry. <laughs> um, so it was chock-a-block full of engineers from the mining industry, and, um, which was fine. I think um, uh, um, certainly meant that being an arts graduate, I could shake things off a little bit at times. But uh, I think... Um, there was a point where I got really, really tired of hearing about um, of, of, of people <laughs> wanting to do uh, their group projects on mining excavation. And <laughs> a mine site. And I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> that was probably the only drawback. Yeah, great. Well, look, you've been a really good sport. Uh, we, you know, I know how busy you are during the day and you know, to come on in the evening and do, do something like this is obviously taking time out of your family. So um, we really appreciate you coming on, Louisa, and sharing your story with us. No, no problems. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's, um, it's been great to have a chat and I'm just relieved that my children haven't come screaming into the room. Something. <laughs> I'm very fortunate that we haven't been interrupted. Well, they wouldn't have been the first, so don't worry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was Louisa Kinnear, the CEO of Jakarta Energy on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.